2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. On the podcast today, we are joined by Hongwei Bao, Associate Professor in Media Studies at the University of Nottingham. Hongwei will be talking about his new book, Queer China, Lesbian and Gay Literature and Visual Culture Under Post-Socialism, which was published in 2020 by Rutledge. Hongwei, welcome back to the show.
0: Hi, uh, Laurie. Thanks for having me here.
2: Yeah. Listeners may remember that we did an interview together uh, for your first book, Queer Comrades Gay Identity and Tongzhe Activism in Post Socialist China, uh, which came out a couple of years before this one in 2018. Um, but for listeners who haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, could you briefly tell us about yourself?
0: Yeah, sure, sure. So I'm currently Associate Professor in Media Studies at University of Nottingham, and I research on Chinese queer history and culture. So when I say history and culture, it probably includes everything and anything from literature to art to theatre to media and so on. So I primarily use this, a anthropology and cultural studies approach to analyze cultural texts as well as social practices.
2: Awesome. Um, And now perhaps we can get to your new book here, Queer China. Uh, Could you tell us uh, how you came to write this book? And I believe there is some connection with your, your previous work, Queer Comrades.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So after the publication of my book, Queer Comrades, which was based on my PhD thesis, by the way, so I received an invitation from an editor, uh, Professor Russell Westpavlo from Rutledge. He was editing a book series on literary cultures of the global south. And he's asking me if I would be interested in writing a book about queer literary cultures I'm not trained in literature, but I think the cultural studies approach also has something to contribute to literary cultures. And when they say literary cultures, they actually include everything, you know, such as visual culture, popular culture, and so on. So this is in a way a great opportunity for me to say what I didn't have to say, uh, didn't have time to say in queer comrades. For example, in Queer comrades I talked about political activism, but I didn't explain what is activism. So the question is actually a very important question. And I know this when I finish Queer Commerce, which is what is activism? What is queer activism in China? When we're talking about queer activism in China, is that the same thing as in the West? So that's one question that I have in mind when I write Queer China. And of course, the second question is, as you know, Queer Comrades already has a very strong focus on cultural activism, on different types of cultural engagements, such as films, literature, and so on. So this, as it turns out, is a very important theme and probably deserves another book to explain that. So I use this opportunity really to pick up those two themes that I left from Queer Comrades and developed into this book Queer China. So, Queer China is really a book on the queer literary and cultural production in post socialist China. So, in relation to the first book, uh, so emphasis on uh, queer political identity and activism, this book would have a stronger focus on culture.
2: Yeah, I think, um, having read both books, they work really well together. Um, I felt that my reading experience of Queer China was really enriched by that, that previous discussion, uh, in, in, in your other book, uh, Queer Comrades. So, uh, I'm glad you were able to continue that. Um, could you tell us uh, a little bit about how you went about conducting your research? I know you spent uh, a lot of time in China uh, and you describe your work as participatory action research. So you could could you tell us a little bit about what that entails?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first I'll say that is that the fieldwork of this book, somewhat overlaps with the fieldwork of my last book, Queer Comrades, which was basically a kind of ethnography of queer community and culture and activism in China in the 2000s, from 2000 to 2010s, etc. But after that, I went back to China every year oh, before the pandemic, and then uh, continued my fieldwork research. So Fieldwork work is certainly an important method, but there are also other methods. So because of the subject matter, so I'm looking at those literary texts I'm looking at films so inevitably so textual analysis of these cultural works would be an important method I also use for example the kind of archival research to uh, uncover historical materials and discursive research or discourse analysis to look at the discursive formation of the post socialist Chinese society so those are the main methods that I'm using. It looks like a mishmash of methods, but in a way it works well for such a project with uh, attention to cultural texts as well as cultural practices. So as a kind of insider of the Chinese queer community, sometimes I have this kind of identity crisis of doing, ethnographic research so am i a researcher or am i an activist so a lot of times i participated in those cultural events sometimes even uh, being very proactive in helping out in those events such as beijing queer film festival and uh, 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 china queer film festival tour and so on so forth so eventually i negotiated my own identity as a kind of active activist researcher so in other words the research that i'm conducting is part of china's queer activism at the same time chinese queer activism also informs my own research and makes me come up with new theoretical paradigms concepts and so on so i no longer consider myself as a sole researcher doing objective research and my subjectivity becomes particularly strong in my ethnographical account and in my analysis of the cultural tips.
2: Yeah, um, I definitely saw uh, that attention to your position in your research. Uh, I really enjoyed the part of your introduction where you were talking about Chinese history uh, during your life and, and how it intersected with your identity. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and I have to ask you a follow-up question. You briefly mentioned um, that you've been able to participate uh, in the queer community in China during your visits uh, up until COVID. Of course, COVID has disrupted a lot of different things. And it was something I was thinking about Um while considering your book um, because 2020 was the huge turning point for us. So I wonder if you could briefly talk about how COVID has impacted your ability to to conduct your research.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So COVID, both created difficulties or challenges for my research and opportunities. So let's talk about opportunities first. So uh, because of COVID, I'm able to focus more on online activities. So that in a way triggered my next book, which is about queer media in China, China which has a strong focus on the media and cultural production uh, of the Chinese queer communities. Of course, my links with community media producers and with activists are important because they help me understand the environment of all those online production, online activities. But at the same time, I I'm able to focus more attentively on what kind of new strategies are specifically developed and devised online and are used in an online community. So in a way, actually, when offline spaces are limited, the online expressions become very manifest. So mm-hmm. these are opportunities, so, but also there are challenges. The challenges course, not being able to, well, in a way, uh, 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 talk to the activists in person and see those cultural events in person. And also, I mean, the activists are struggling a lot during the COVID, because, not only because of COVID, but also because of the kind of very strengthened government censorship and crackdown of civil society during the COVID period. So it's very disheartening to see what's happening on the ground. Yes, so these are, in a way, some of the challenges of doing COVID research brings out. That also reminds me of the kind of necessity and even the urgency of documenting this part of history when it's fast disappearing. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, Um, I I definitely got that sense that you wanted to record and document in addition to to analyzing uh, what you're looking at in the queer community. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, I wonder if we could continue on and talk a little bit more about some of the key terms that you introduce in your introduction. Uh, So for instance, you use the term post-socialist metamorphosis uh, to describe this transformation or set of transformations taking place in China's post-Mao and post-socialist era. Um, And this is a theme that is throughout your book. So I wonder if you can talk about what you think are the most important features of the post-socialist metamorphosis for, for you. Yeah, sure. So
0: the term, I use the term actually to describe the interaction or the kind of interplay between the social change and the transformation of people's gender, sexualities and subjectivities. So in a way, the social change shapes people's people's subjectivities, at the same time, people's subjectivities are also shaped, are also in a way, interacting with society and history and so on. So in a way, this term brings together the social, political, and individual level really well. But At the same time, I'm very, uh, while I was writing this book, I was very much influenced by Deleuzean way of thinking and also Chinese Taoism. So basically thinking about human subjectivities as forever changing and the society is constantly constantly changing. But such theorization can easily lead to the kind of historical annihilation. So essentially, we need a strong historical social context to anchor all these changes. So in China, When we're talking about gay identity and queer desire today, we're essentially talking about how China's specific historical trajectory and social conditions shaped people's expressions of gender, sexuality, and identity. And I use this term post-socialist metamorphosis to describe the negotiation of China's socialist past and the post-socialist present and the the global and the local Chinese and the global and so on. So in people's feelings, subjectivities and embodiments.
2: I think you've already answered some of the other questions I had for you uh, regarding the introduction. So maybe we can move ahead to part one of your book a little bit. And um, this first part is called Queer Emergence. And in the first chapter, you again are presenting this kind of history, uh, this genealogy of where we get um, maybe current gay identities and queer desire in in China, um, how they reemerge in the post-socialist period. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the issues that you raise here. Um, One idea you explore is something called the repressive hypothesis. Uh, So I'm wondering if you can explain what that is and then tell us a little bit about your critique of the hypothesis as it's been applied to China.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the term is not my invention, as you know, it is uh, originally a Foucaultian term, among others. So essentially, the Foucaultian genealogy is very strong in this chapter. By talking about repressive hypothesis, I'm actually talking about the Western imagination of Chinese gay identity and queer culture. So as something repressed. So there's always this rhetoric that gays and lesbians were suppressed in the Mao era and now with China's reform and opening up, they have been liberated and they are uh, bravely either embracing or celebrating their sexualities etc. So this would constitute the kind of dominant discourse about uh, gay culture in China so there is also a sense of the repression that they're facing and uh, 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 framing the west as a gay paradise etc so by doing this, I'm actually drawing on a lot of historical scholarship, including the scholarship by historian Kang Wenqing, who did a lot of oral history projects of the older Chinese gay men who have lived through the Cultural Revolution and the Mao era and the 1980s, etc. And his re- research is fascinating. It debunks the notion that Actually, in the Maoist era, people don't have genders, don't have sexualities, and there were no gay people, and gay people were prosecuted, and so on, so forth. Yes, there are, there were cases of prosecution, there were suffering, and there were a lot of agony of not being able to express your own identity and subjectivity. But I think that uh, uh, Wenqing's research actually primarily sheds lights on the kind of narratives of in a way people's expressions of genders and sexualities were there but uh, they were not talked about in a contemporary sense so in other words it's about how you frame these practices and how you see these practices so Going back to why the discourse was so dominant, that was in a way related to the Cold War rhetoric of the kind of uh, 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 repressive, uh, repressive Chinese regime that uh, impedes people's uh, sexuality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's more of a discursive analysis and a critique to the dominant ideologies. And of course, in any day and age, there were people who were being suppressed or repressed. And in Mao's era, many people probably uh, 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 had a really unhappy life. But this doesn't mean there are not not other narratives. There are also other narratives that are fascinating that uh, tags into the notion of how identity is understood and whether sexual identity would be the dominant forms of identity formation for a historical era.
2: Thank you for that uh, really good uh, discussion of the repressive hypothesis. I think it's an important point to make. Um, Later in this same chapter, you explore some of the areas in which gay identity and queer desire were publicly discussed since China's reform and opening up. Um, And scholarship seems to be one major way that this happened. Could you walk us through how that uh, public discussion started to happen and uh, in the 1980s and 1990s and the role that intellectuals played here. Yeah,
0: sure. So I have to confess that this is some part that I would, uh, that I hope that I could have time to rework on. This is because I um, um, I was using the discursive analysis or discourse analysis to analyze this historical period and of course by focusing on discourse you pay attention to certain elements and other elements might have been neglected or undermined so of course, there was a proliferation of discourses about sexuality. There were tabloid newspapers, there were new presses, and there were radio tele- uh, r- radio shows and night talks, etc. That talks about sexuality in an exciting way, and that's one aspect. And Chinese intellectuals played a, a no small part in this process. For example, there were sociologists, Li Yinghe, who conducted interviews with local gay men in Beijing in the 1990s. And that became the first sociological research into homosexuality, which is called 男人的世界. And then there were Zhang Beichuan, who published the first medical research into homosexuality in post-Mao China, which is called Ai. And then there was also journalist Feng Gang, who interviewed a lot of gay men, sometimes actually with quite unethical methods such as pretending to be a medical doctor, consulting uh, with uh, 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 gay gay men and lesbians, etc. So all these publications raised awareness of homosexuality or LGBTQ people in China, and they played an important role in bringing this topic into the public discourse. At the same time, with the relaxation of China's censorship role, uh, at that time, more and more newspapers and television stations or radio stations started to, to talk about genders and sexualities in a very exciting way. So gays, uh, LGBT issues become part of this, this issue of discursive explosion about sexuality in the post era. However, as I mentioned, that the method the discourse analysis has its own Downsides, which is a focus on what's printed and what's said and what's documented. And there are a lot of people's practices that have not been documented. For example, people have been gathering in local parks and uh, cruising grounds, toilets and so on to cruise. And that also shaped the formation of the queer communities, but only by... Uh, relying on uh, publicly published sources, uh, this insight hasn't gone into the analysis of the chapter, which is a
2: pity. Mm -hmm. Well, that maybe provides some interesting avenues for future work, it sounds like. Um, The rest of your book is really interesting for me because each chapter is a case study of some kind of piece of literature or cultural production. And it's everything from documentaries, other films, uh, artwork, and even online uh, cultural productions, which, which I think is a, a really interesting avenue too. So um, with the rest of our time, I'm hoping that we can discuss a few of these case studies um, and and hear what you have to say about uh, their analysis. Um, so I think one thing I recall from your previous book is that uh, it focused really on gay men, uh, but with this book, you're expanding uh, your your source base to talk about uh, lesbians as well. You even have a section that that deals uh, with, you know, this. Concept of trans as as well. So I find this really exciting. Um perhaps we can look at your second chapter, uh, Women 50 Minutes in search of queer women's spaces. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh who this filmmaker Shito you're talking about and and her film?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Shito is probably one of the most uh, prominent uh, lesbian or like, uh, queer women filmmakers in China. She has not only made films, but she was trained as an artist. So she has also got a lot of paintings, installation and photography, etc., which is fascinating. She was also very active in China's queer activism and co-founded some organizations and initiatives and, and so on. So when I say Shi Tou, I, I should add that I'm, probably, I'm also talking about the artist collective and artist duo Ming Ming because her partner, Ming Ming, is also very active in making a lot of these works. So we should understand the authorship as a co-authorship. So with a lot of grassroots and community productions, sometimes the authorship needs to be understood as a collaborative, as a kind of co-authorship. So that's the first clarification. And she hosts films i'm talking about films here uh, it is fascinating so she, she has made about uh, five to seven or eight films and some are more widely circulated than others but her films are mostly documentaries documenting china's queer communities in particular documenting china's lesbian communities for example her film women 50 minutes is basically a Documentary of women's lives in different parts of China, and then her other film, "Uh, We Are Here," 我们在这里 is basically a film about Chinese history of uh, China's qu- history of queer women's activism since 1995, since the Beijing United Women's Conference. And then she also has other films such as We Want to Get Married and so on, which is about the kind of queer marriage practices in China's queer communities and the kind of same-sex rights advocacy campaigns. I would say her work is very fascinating because her work is characterized by a very strong subjectivity a very strong subjective voice she always uses a first-person narration in her films and she also uses subtitles these subtitles are not transcription of people's speech on screen but her own thoughts, they look like proses or essays or critical comments from the author. So that's fascinating. If you think about the bigger landscape of China's documentary, a lot of them have been very much influenced by the direct cinema traditions, which is a kind of objective documentation of the social realities as they were. Xu Toh's works, in a way, defines or challenges this objective cinema tradition foregrounding her own subjectivity, her own gendered and queer subjectivity clearly on screen and in front of the camera. So this is fascinating.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this chapter uh, because I was maybe surprised by uh, the style of her films as you described them. Uh, so for instance, you mentioned the subtitles that she includes, her her voiceovers, um, and I think, especially for a Western audience, we think of documentaries as being very true and factual. And for her, you, you mentioned these kind of interesting moments where she's interpreting images that she has, you know, put together. But sometimes, uh, you know, you're, you're not sure if what she's saying is, is what is actually happening. Um, and here I'm thinking maybe of that was it the lesbian village where you have this older uh, couple, these these two women who are are spending some time together in a park and, and she says that they've loved each other their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know if that's actually the case or if that's how she's reading it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would call this queer reading strategies. So that's a kind of queer intervention into archives. So queer people's voices have always been missing in history. So where do you find them? And you really need creative strategies to find them, to interpret them. So one way she does is to find that kind of female homosociality or the intimacy between women. So in her films, you can see friendship between school girls or the kind of Camaraderie between people in the same, for example, this is a, the, the same workers' union and so on. So, well, simply interpreting them as friendship is not sufficient. And we really need a queer eye, we really need a queer spirit to interpret as part of the kind of spectrum or part of the continuum where female intimacy, same sex intimacy can be located. So that's why that I call this chapter kind of locating queer women's spaces. It's not that queer women's spaces are there waiting to be discovered. It's really about how we look at women's lives, how we look at queer women's existence and finding inspiration from existing archives.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
2: Yeah, I thought it was a really fascinating case study. Um, I wonder if we can turn to your next chapter now, uh, Beijing Story, Becoming Gay in Post-Socialist China. Uh, this was, as you say, originally an online novel, later adapted into a film, and you describe it as, quote, a narrative of desires in queer space in post-socialist China, end quote. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about this story um, and what you think it has to say about the intersection of class and gay identities and queer desires in China? Um, And and just as a side note, I think it's really fantastic that you're looking at uh, some online sources here, right? Yeah
0: thank you uh by the way so for uh, english speakers or english readers this novel has not been published in english so it's called beijing comrades translated by scott myers which is really well done so i would encourage you to find the book and read so but of course when this book was first first appeared it was an online novel and of course when you publish on a bbs so it's in a way, published on instruments. So the author wrote one chapter, one section and publish it. And then they added the uh, readers will comment on it and will appreciate it and so on and so forth. And then this encourages the writer to keep on writing. So in a way, it's a very interactive, uh, process, when we read this novel in a book form, we probably can't imagine, actually, what it was at that time, but it's important to understand the, the context of this uh, the, uh, uh, this story, and this story was later adapted into a film called Lan Yu, but of course, because Stanley Kwan is a Hong Kong filmmaker, and, she, and he has his own interpretations as a film, so the book and the film might have some differences, but each one has its own charm. So this story, by the way, is one of my favorite uh, queer stories from China, simply because it was very much intertwined with my own growing up experience when I was at university. So someone passed me uh, 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 the novel, at that time an online story, and I followed the story (laughs) night by night. I was very unusual experience. So, but coming back to it, it's actually a very, you know way, you can call it a cliché story because it's really about two men falling in love with each other and one is a rich businessman with wide government connections from a richer family and the other person is a poor university student who struggled with paying a tuition fee and then they met on an occasion where the young guy had to prostitute himself to earn a tuition fee. But of course, at at first, neither man took this seriously. It was just a transaction of money and sex. But eventually, they came to realization that they their relationship is more serious than they had thought it to be so this was a a a more important historical moment and what's worth mentioning is that this historical moment happened to be in uh, 1989 so during the tiamen so in the uh, aftermath of tiamen so the story was basically divided into two parts before 1989 and both people didn't recognize or didn't acknowledge their relationship or their identity. And after that, somehow they came out to themselves. So it's a fascinating story and it's beautifully written. So without giving out much to those who haven't read it, so I would say that it's a love story that, uh, that is set in a very unusual historical background. And this is connection between personal experience and the social background that matters. That is more important to me. Mm.
2: I'm sure the listeners appreciate that you aren't going to spoil the story for them. Um, I I was really struck uh, with this chapter and some of your later chapters that deal, um, you know, really directly with class. So I found that another uh, important kind of through line in your book as well, uh, that you know, not everything is, you know, middle class or upper class, uh, gay identity. There are these, uh, working class identities that are really important as well. Yep. Um, perhaps we can talk about, uh, your next chapter, chapter four, uh, which is dealing with another online, uh, source base, uh, with fan fiction. I, I, I was not expecting this at all. <laughs> it, I found it kind of exciting to, to think about fa- fan fiction as this cultural artifact where we can think a lot about uh, lesbian identity and think also about this really interesting relationship between the writer of this fan fiction and also the community around it. Um, you use this term prosumption uh, to talk about this. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, Pink Affairs and uh, this interesting kind of relationship.
0: Yeah, sure. So, of course, the prosumption is not my word. So it's a word in fan studies. So developer Henry Jenkins, among others. So it's basically two words putting together, uh, production and consumption. So in online fan communities, and a lot of times, fans are active producers of cultural texts. For example, those fans would write fan fictions, create fanzines, and so on. So they are not only consuming cultural products, but they are producing, and a lot of times, they are producing cultural artifacts for themselves. So the background of the fest or Shoe is actually a a reality TV show called "超级女生" (Super Supergirl so that was very popular in the early 2000s. So what's fascinating was that in on that uh, uh, TV show, so there were some contestants and some look tomboyish and some look more feminine. And there's no indication in the show itself that they might be gay or queer. However, that doesn't stop fans from matching them, from pairing them. So this is what fans did in that fan community, in uh, uh, CP Chao Nui Ba. So what they did was basically to pair those two characters and tell stories about their, their love and sex and intimacy and so on. And a lot of them were based on parts of these two contestants' lives, but not everything is about them. So this is really about fantasy. So in a way, this genre is probably called ghost love, today. So you might be more familiar with boys' love, which is basically beautiful boys falling in love together and so on. And girls' love is, in a way, a similar context, uh, concept. Beautiful girls falling in love with each other and so on. So what's striking about this fiction is that it's about class relations. People come from different class backgrounds, and it's also about the kind of transnational and cosmopolitan dream. So, as if that uh, uh, when you are abroad. And uh, when you go to the West, you suddenly pick up this kind of Chinese uh, queer identity. So that for me is fascinating. And it's very consistent with the stories of Beijing story, which is about class relations, class mobility, and how gender and sexualities become a mediating factor to bridge this class difference. And for me, this is really a kind of Political unconscious in a lot of those popular cultural texts, which is that so once you have new forms of genders and sexualities, suddenly class doesn't matter anymore. So, as if the genders and sexualities can replace the old rhetoric of class and in the social inequality, of course, there are a lot of utopian, in a way, aspirations of transgressing the social boundaries and social inequalities. But at the same time, there's also a very strong denial of the social injustices as if that gay relationship can somehow actually live in a vacuum, can somehow actually create a kind of more egalitarian social I- I- imaginary.
2: Mm. That's really interesting. Um, I think another thing that you mentioned in this chapter was that for the readers themselves, uh, these fan fictions are, are kind of like a, a fantasy, almost. You don't use the word escapism, but it almost feels like that in terms of uh, the, the class status of these two protagonists who, uh, as you say, were some living somewhere in Shanghai, but in a, a house, which means they must have been very wealthy. Um, But yeah, uh, another theme that emerged as well, as I I think you've, you've talked a little bit about here is this, um, this almost dual identity of being global citizens, but also Chinese. And I don't know what do you think those two things are coexisting here? Or are they at, at, um, at odds?
0: Yeah. Well, it's strange that we're talking about this, uh, because at this historical moment, it does look like being Chinese and being global are more separated than we anticipate. But remember, most of those stories were written in the 2000s to 2010s, when Mm -hmm. there was very strong optimism about being Chinese is also a global citizen and China is also part of the world. And there's not much difference between the Chinese and the Western, being Chinese is already being global and being global is also being part of the Chinese. So that was pretty much the rhetoric of the opening up as well as uh, China's entry WTO. So there was this discourse, mainstream discourse going on. So encouraging people to embrace the global, embrace the West, and considering themselves as both Chinese citizens and the world citizens at the same time. But now I think that since the start of the pandemic, probably even before that, so there was a very strong sense of antagonism between being Chinese and being global, as if they are not that in... Compat- they're not that compatible with each other so I think those cultural texts now looking back I think they do have they do bear the traces of their history
2: yeah I think that historical context there is really key right we, we like you say we may approach these texts a little bit differently today um, Why don't we go ahead and talk about uh, some of the later parts of your book. Uh, So part three, you look at queer urban space, uh, and here you have a couple of really interesting examples. Um, You have one about uh, this public performance of a same-sex wedding in Beijing. uh, And you also have one on um, poetry. By I wonder if you could maybe spend some time talking about activism here. You mentioned that was one thing that you wanted to explore a little bit more. So one thing you do in Chapter 5 is talk about the predominant forms of activism in post-socialist China. So could, could you lay that out for us? Yep,
0: absolutely. So this chapter is actually really important because it is a chapter that I started to think about activism in a Chinese context really seriously. And later I expanded on the idea. So in my uh, new book, Contemporary Chinese Queer Performance, so essentially I spend the whole book talking about the theater and performance paradigms in Chinese queer activism, but uh, let's, uh, just go back to that example, the example that I'm talking about is a same-sex wedding event in 2009 in Tianmen uh, in Beijing, basically in central Beijing. So now it would seem impossible, but at that time it was more possible. So essentially so a group of Chinese queer activists went to central Beijing to take wedding pictures instead of posing a man and a woman having wedding pictures. They have a man and a man taking wedding pictures, a woman and a woman taking wedding pictures together. So, of course, this attracted a lot of onlookers and people were gathered and not knowing what's happening. And what's fascinating is that Fan Pupu, the filmmaker, followed this event, followed this type of activism, which we call flash mob type of activism, and documented the whole process. And the filmmaker also interviewed the onlookers, the pedestrians on the street saying, oh, what do you think about this? Would you support same-sex marriage in China or not, etc.? So what we are seeing here is multi-layered. So on the one hand, we have a kind of enactment of a kind of marriage ritual, although marriage ritual is usually seen as heteronormative, but in this case, the queer, the heteronormative scripts of uh, uh, marriage and family, but on the other hand, this is a kind of performed ritual, it's performative. So in other words, it's a process for the Actors for the participants, for the activists, actually to reinforce their identities, and for the unders- for the onlookers to understand this type of intimacy is possible and yet another layer which is the kind of documentary part so essentially this becomes a kind of filmed and documented event and this mediated event was further mediated through through the internet through social media and through community screenings etc so this is a fascinating event and it was it in a way serves a good example of the creativity of local queer activists. So they understand the necessity of creating a news effect, creating headline news. You know, same-sex marriage was a headline news at the time. So they had to create such a spectacle in order to attract the audience. And at the same time, they are also in a way, uh, aware of the local conditions and constraints, for example, the police interventions. If they had held this event on Tiananmen, probably the situation would have been different. If they, uh, for example didn't make this a wedding photo shoot, and they make it as a kind of wedding ceremony. So probably it would have been more controversial. So in other words, we see the careful consideration of local conditions and the devising of the kind of context-specific and culturally sensitive strategies. So this Is a good example of the kind of indigenous or local forms of Chinese queer activism. They draw on global scripts, but at the same time, they are also attentive to local conditions and to specific activist strategies. So I'm using this as an example to showcase the many, many other indigenous indigenous and ingenious forms of queer activist practices that makes strategic use of digital media performance and uh, social engagement. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think it it's a really interesting point you make in, in your book and an important one that the type of acti- activism you can do in China isn't going to look like the type of activism that you can do in like the West, right? Uh, y- you make this comparison between this you know, savvy, sensitive, local activism of Chinese activists, and then maybe the more in-your-face, uh, you know, gay pride parade style of activism. And you explain why, why it has to be done differently uh, in China. So that's a fantastic point.
0: Yeah, this doesn't mean that gay pride didn't exist mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. china in fact shanghai pride uh would lasted uh more than 10 years before it was shut down in 2020 i think mm-hmm. so uh, uh, essentially there were also in your face type of activism but even for shanghai pride they were very understanding of the local conditions, and they had lots of compromises and uh, in consideration of uh, the participants' safety as well as China's political, in a way, political limits. So, yes, but I'm mainly using it actually mm, to compare with a Western way of kind of coming out as kind of confrontational type of activism that takes kind of into individual identity as a true essence, as a basis, as a sole basis of activism. But in fact, actually, there are other, in a way, uniting factors or uh, enabling factors that help articulate different types of identities and strategies. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, I think we only have one time for one more of your case studies, and we have three left. So people will have to go and read your book to find out about the other ones. <clears throat> um, I think, why don't we go with your eighth chapter, Life of a uh, Butterfly, Subjectivation, and Autonomy in She uh, Diaz, uh, Paper Cutting Art. Um, I'm going with this for two reasons. I think that it's exciting that this is the first scholarly treatment of this artist. And uh, also, it maybe gets us a little bit more at the theme of, uh, you know, diverse uh, types of, you know, gay people and gay art in, in China. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, who this man is, uh, and, and how he went from being a farmer and folk artist to one of the best known, uh, queer artists living in China. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Yeah, so first a little bit uh Xi Yadie. is a paper cutting artist or paper cutter. So some of you might familiar with paper cutting as a kind of folk art or traditional art. It's basically, you use a scissors to cut uh, some papers into different shapes and so on. So this is in a way a tradition that uh, is popular in north and northwest China and also it also exists in other parts of the world But uh, when people think about paper cutting people think about those very traditional very, you know, heteronormative Imaginaries for example paper cutting are always used for weddings heterosexual weddings They are often used in rural settings and so on so in a way they are very incompatible with queerness, which is considered to be kind of modern or postmodern and Western and so on. But what fascinates me is that Xi dia uses this traditional form of expression and craft to express his queer desire. For example, if you look at somebody's works, there are two men having sex with each other. However, they don't look that explicit at all. This is due to the kind of particular art artistic language is the paper cutting that uh, involves a lot of abstraction and Uh, disfiguration, so in a way it's more like cubism or it's more like a kind of modern uh, 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 artworks so what's fascinating about Xi life is that he was born in northwest China in Shanxi province in a village and uh, he learned paper cutting from the rural women from his mother, grandmother and so on so well uh, he migrated to big cities to look for jobs of course in his youth and he was trained in Chinese traditional arts and crafts. And he didn't catch people's attention for a long time. Of course, he was known as a good paper cutter, but apart from that, that didn't make him stand out Amongst all the artists, until he was discovered by Chinese queer communities. So he went to Beijing LGBT Center and showed his artworks, and the staff at Beijing LGBT Center immediately recognized that he's a a queer artist. And this discovery this transition is significant for his life so through Beijing LGBT Center he was put in touch with international curators art organizations and become the Chinese queer artist so it's considered the Chinese queer artist because he uses a traditional Chinese form of expression it's also because his language and the uh, content of his expressions are very gay explicit so somehow actually branded with this queerness that his art was suddenly elevated to an international level and became the kind of representative for Chinese queer art. Of course, I love his artworks and he's really a great person. But for the purpose of analysis, I think what's fascinating is the transformation of his own subjectivity from a farmer to an artist, from a folk artist to a queer artist, and the kind of almost the erasure of the class class. class identity and rural identity replaced by this newly acquired global form of gay identity. That makes him a good example of what I call post-socialist metamorphosis.
2: Mm. Yeah, he's a a really interesting case to look at. And uh, your your book is great because it has, um, you know, numerous photographs of uh, his artwork, but also, you know, stills from the the movies that you discuss and so on. So uh, that's that's a great part of your work. Uh, So we're starting to come towards the end of our time here. Uh, So one question we often ask on this podcast is, you know, what are you working on currently? And actually, I know you've written a couple of books uh, since this book came out or you've been working on other projects. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing since uh, the publication of Queer China? Sure. So I have a tendency of
0: working on sequels. So essentially, after Queer Comrades, then there are something to be explained about cultural activism. So I wrote uh, Queer China, and after Queer China, because I'm in the field of media and communication studies, and because there are so many fascinating materials about queer media and cultural production, I wrote my next book on Queer Media in China. And then after that, there's a, well, in a way, as I discussed, the importance of the theater performance paradigm in Chinese queer activism. So that takes me to the next book, which is Contemporary Chinese Queer Performance. So these books pretty much form a a, a series that document China's queer cultural history from the 1980s, 90s to present. So focusing on the year 2000s and 2010s. So in a way, they are important historical periods because they were when gay identity or LGBTQ plus identity become manifest in Chinese society and became an identity. And this identity started to make claims about their existence, about their rights. So that was uh, down. and I'm currently editing a book on contemporary Chinese queer art which is fascinating so we invited some Chinese queer artists including Xi and Shi Tou and Fan Po Po among others so about 15 uh, artists to write about their artist practices and to reflect on what is Chinese queer art we also have curators, scholars uh, 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 reflecting on this issue so that's the, an edited collection, Contemporary Chinese Queer Art, to be published by Bloomsbury uh, Press next year, next summer. So uh, I think that book will be uh, in color. So you have got colorful pictures. So I'm looking forward to that.
2: That's so exciting, Hongwei, that you have this rich body of, of research. And now we get to uh, you know, look forward to this book coming out on artwork, the edited work. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and to talk about your wonderful book. Uh, It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Hongwei.
0: It has been my pleasure. Thank you, Laurie. Thank everyone.
2: Yes. And thank you to everyone who has turned into the show. Uh, You've been listening to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day, everyone.